Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, we come really to deal with some, with some lofty topics this morning. Um, and I will say, just as a way of, of introduction, many of you perhaps have heard of a brother in the faith, seemingly, who has and was a major part of, um, of Christianity to some degree, publishing books and things like that that have influenced probably many of you, uh, coming out in the media and saying that he has abandoned the faith. Now, oddly enough, what we come to this morning is literally the words of our Lord telling us that he has given us all that is necessary to keep us from falling away. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we come to this topic is perhaps place a moment of, uh, of sobering recognition on it, that should we have a means of keeping ourselves apart from the finished work of Christ, apart from the Father's love for us, and apart from the Spirit's keeping of us, then we can rest very comfortably, or perhaps not rest very comfortably, for we stand on ground that is indeed mutable. It is subject to change. But for those of us who are in Christ, we come with a great confidence knowing that the Lord Jesus has given us all that we need to be kept. The Lord Jesus has given us all that we need to actually be secure, and the Spirit of God is actively working to bring us home. Now, the reason I set that up this morning is because we're coming to a passage where Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He is preparing them for a great deal of turmoil that's just on the horizon. Now, when we come to this, I think we can remove ourselves from it for just for, slightly because when we look at it, we see persecution about to break out. There's about to be all types of difficulties that the, that the disciples are going to endure. And not only the disciples, but if we were to carry this throughout the remainder of the New Testament, we would ultimately see that the entire body of Christ will be actively persecuted day in and day out because they are heralding this good, glorious, and also exclusive news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we come here, we have to be careful not to remove ourselves from this because everything that we come to, everything that we see the Lord Jesus communicate to us, and then also explain why, we, why he would say that we, that, that we need these things to keep ourselves from falling away, are good both in war times and in peace times. That when he is giving us words that we might remain in him, we should take heed of them in the midst of the greatest comforts that we might have here below. And we should also take heed of them amidst the greatest trials, tribulation, whether that come by natural occurrences or, all, or through persecution. And so what we are coming to this morning is Jesus essentially giving them a reminding them of all that he has taught them in regard to him being the true vine, giving them reasons why it was necessary for him to teach them all of these things, and then lastly kind of reinforcing everything that he's taught them up to this point. So to some degree, Jesus is giving an assurance sandwich. He is trying to make sure that we have the comfort that comes through knowing Christ and that also we have the comfort that comes through 
having the Holy Spirit of God. And he's going to give us in the middle why he thinks these things are so necessary or why he knows these things are so necessary for us to actually be kept. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 16 is where we're going to be, verse 1 through 7. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I would remind you, brothers, that what you have, brothers and sisters, what you have before you is the word of God, truth with no mixture of error, or as we often say, it is the only, only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. John chapter 16, starting in verse 1, says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we come heeding your words. We come knowing that we are in desperate need of something foreign to keep us. For Lord, we cannot keep ourselves. It is not us that holds on to you, but you who holds on to us. And Father, as we come to these things, I pray that what you would create in our hearts is a strong desire to lean into Christ, that he who holds us, we might lean in on, that we might trust him, rely on him, depend on him, that should we feel the ground shaking beneath us, that we would find ourselves reminded of the blessed words of Jesus, that he loses nothing of that which he has purchased. But Lord, let us also take note. Let us not walk away from this foolishly assuming that we can abandon all of the things that you have commanded to us and still somehow be kept in you. And so, Father, I ask you, would you make these things clear to us? Would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? And would you, by the Spirit that keeps us, illuminate these truths to our hearts this morning? It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) The sermon in a sentence this morning is, The word and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit keep us from falling away. Short and sweet. If there's something up there, that's wrong. Um, The sermon in a sentence is, the word and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit of God keeps us from falling away. Wow, that's confusing. The word and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit keep us from falling away. Now, the reason I bring this to your attention is because what we find here, what Jesus is articulating to his disciples is is a really a, a preparation for what's to come. And when we look at it, I just really want to take really verse 1, and then I want to kind of develop exactly what Jesus is preparing them for, and then I want to come back around and give us how Jesus will ultimately apply these things to us by giving us another helper, which we've already spoken of. And so first and foremost, we see that Jesus encourages his disciples to consider and keep his words. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to keep you Forgive me, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, there is a question that we have to ask here from the get-go is, why is it that they would need to be kept from falling away? 
You know, whenever we come to the scriptures, whenever we come to an understanding of the gospel, so often what we do is begin our doctrine, begin our theology with man instead of God. And I think uh, that's a huge error. But when we consider the fact that every ounce of the gospel, every ounce of that which will actually bring us into saving faith with saving faith will, was born of God. And then we come to our perseverance. We come to our continuing on in the faith. And we often seem to abandon that. We seem to go elsewhere. Basically, the whole argument of Galatians is that you've been rescued by faith. Do you assume then that you will continue to keep yourself by something other than faith? And the whole concept of Galatians is saying, No, by no means. There's no way for you to keep yourself. And certainly if there was a way for you to keep yourself, it would not be different than what actually brought you in in the first place. Now, the thing that has to be presumed here is Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, apart from all that I provide for you, you will in actuality fall away. There is no means for us to keep ourselves apart from the finished work of Jesus, apart from, as it were, his words and his work. So when he looks at them and says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, the first thing we must realize is Jesus has actually provided what is necessary to keep us. Now, this is an argument for the security of the believer, of which I make no apology. For apart from it, we would be the most ignorant of all men, wandering about to and fro, swayed by our emotions day in and day out. Friends, brothers and sisters, I would, I would like to plead with you to trust the words and work of Christ to keep you in your salvation. Look nowhere else, for it will not be provided. And Jesus has made this abundantly clear. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, what we are so prone to do is look elsewhere. Can I just articulate for a moment that I fear even the saint does this from time to time. When we aim to see whether or not we are in the faith, we do not look to affection for Christ. We do not look to the gospel. Instead, we often look to some type of works that we are producing, that that would be the thing that keeps us. Saint, your works are not able to keep you. They evidence that you are kept most certainly, but they are not able to keep you. What is it that is able to keep you from falling away? Jesus has articulated this over the last really three chapters. He's argued that it's his pronouncement of you being clean that actually makes you clean. He's argued that if you be in the vine, then you will actually bear fruit day in and day out unto God for his ultimate praise and glory. And so Jesus begins to prepare them for this danger, and yet he has already provided that which is necessary to avoid the danger altogether. But let's not demean what he's actually articulating here. Because we look at this, and as we understand what's coming next, we're easy to say, well, the danger is persecution. The danger is the hatred of the world. Jesus does not prepare you to avoid the hatred of the world. Jesus does not prepare you to avoid persecution. He does not prepare his disciples to avoid death. He prepares them. He provides all that is necessary to keep them in him. Because the great danger, even as he is teaching them these things in light of present and future hatred, the Jews are already despising Christ because of what he has done and therefore despising his disciples. He is preparing them for the future persecution that will indeed come. But he is not preparing them for these things. He is preparing them so that they will actually be kept amidst these things. Saints, you have no promises from God that you will not experience persecution. You have no promises from God that you will not experience difficulties, trials, and tribulations, regardless of what TBN often teaches you. It is irrelevant. It is far from the clear teaching of Scripture. You will go through various trials and tribulations. As a matter of fact, they are often even communicated as grace to us. 
That they're communicated in God's word is something that births perseverance, that it continues and even pushes forward sanctification in the believer's life. And what we often see people articulating is avoiding those things altogether when that should never be our aim nor goal because it was never Christ's aim nor goal. Christ's aim in the believer's life is that they would indeed produce fruit. And he prepares them for this by telling them to fix their eyes on what he has done and what he has said. Now, what are those things? And so the great danger that he presents, the thing that he is preventing us from, when we look at this statement, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The word there, and you'll recognize it, is scandalizo. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like scandal. It's where we draw our word scandal from. When we look at this, the greatest danger, the thing that Jesus is preparing them for, the thing that Jesus has provided for them to keep them from scandalizing, essentially, from falling away is the language. And Jesus has provided all that is necessary for us to not scandalize the gospel. What has he provided? Friends, if you were to look at this in any way, and think, well, he's provided 99%. Or if he's provided any type of percentage, and it's not 100, then we are really placing ourselves on ground that is incredibly shakable because it is ground that is founded upon our own abilities. When we look at the Scriptures, Jesus says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you. This is not subjunctive in nature. He is telling you that these things will actually occur. He has given us all that is necessary to keep us. Now, what are the things that he has recently taught us? Well, we would have to turn back to John chapter 15 and really just examine verses one through five. I'm not going to do an in-depth exposition of this. If you would like that, you can look at, listen to the later recording. But when we, when we come here, there's this constant refrain of abide in me. Isn't that interesting? Now, abide in me often can be translated, or can also, the word abide can also be translated remain. The whole idea is that you remain in Christ. The whole concept here is that if you want to be kept amidst persecution and trial, or if you want to be kept in the midst of the greatest comforts this world has to offer, perhaps it is that you will be able to, in your life, live 77 plus years, have family, have children and grandchildren, have wealth according to the world's standards, and die. And by God's grace, he's given you all of that. But if you aren't kept in Christ, it's null and void. If you have the, the utmost persecution, if you are dealing with hatred from the world and they are coming after you and your children, but you are kept in Christ, then you have infinitely more than the rich man did. The whole concept here is the great thing that we must have is to be kept in Christ and in his words. And so there are a couple of things that I think are vitally important for us to understand here because we want to understand that he's provided it all, but then we also want to abide in all that he has provided. We want to rest there. And so I think we do well to ask the question or to consider that he has given us and prepared us to persevere. How? How has he prepared us to persevere? He's prepared us to persevere primarily by providing all that we need to persevere. And he's given us this glorious formula that essentially says it matters not whether you're in deep pain and suffering or if you're in the greatest of comfort. The simple solution to remain in Christ is to remain in Christ is to drink of him often, is to find in him your soul's great affection. And I think we do well to, to, to ask these questions to ourselves on the regular. You know, so often we come to these concepts of, am I in Christ? We ask ourselves these questions, and I think this is where we genuinely do begin to count our works. When I think we do better to count our affections, we do so much better to ask, 
Am I drinking of the well of grace that Christ has provided for me? Am I loving and delighting in seeing the glory of God displayed in creation? Am I delighting in seeing the gospel proclaimed? Is it my soul's greatest joy to hear of Jesus' name? That when a brother calls you to tell you of Jesus, your soul is all the more ecstatic. That when you hear someone profess faith in Christ, whether that be a believer already or one who is unconverted, your soul has the greatest of joy because you know there is splendor there, because there is an alien work there born of the Spirit of God. The thing that we must do is check whether or not we are connected to the vine, and in doing so, we look at the evidences. What are these evidences? Do you love Christ? Do you have life? Do you have any affection for him at all? That is the way that we constantly abide in him. Now, here is what I think we often do when we stop asking these questions and start checking our ability to keep certain premises or keep or do certain things, then we have really abandoned that which Christ has given us to keep us. We would rather have the, the evidence, perhaps, than the actual substance the substance of knowing Christ, of being kept in Christ, the substance of everything that he has articulated in these last three verses is that I've provided all that is necessary, that you work from the salvation that I have provided for you, and that in that you will continue and you will in actuality be kept. Now, I have articulated that this is a true statement whether we are in peacetime or whether we are in wartime, whether comfort or suffering. But be faithful to the text, I think we have to look at it from the idea of persecution. So let's just see what the Lord Jesus has to say in regard to this as he prepares them. So I provided all that you need to be kept. I've given you all the words and all the works that are necessary for you to be kept in me, for you to ever constantly be a branch connected to the true vine that is Christ. But then he goes on in verse 2 and says this, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, we hear they will be put out of the synagogues a bit differently than the disciples would have. I mean, really, what's the big deal? To be put out of the synagogue is essentially to be put out of not only the synagogue, but also the temple. That essentially, them being removed from the synagogues is to remove them from the fellowship that they once had, is to remove them from those that they would once have called brothers, that they would be removed from Israel almost, as it were. And not only to be removed from the synagogues, but also even going forward to be removed from the temple, all of a sudden they have no means of sacrifice for sin any longer. That this word from Jesus, when he tells them they will put you out of the synagogues, is a very intense and harsh type of persecution. It's excommunication. It's removing them from all the commonwealth of Israel, which many would say that that's what you need to be saved. That's what you need to actually be able to enter the kingdom of God for those who misunderstood the law. And so to be put out of the synagogue was an incredibly, incredibly harsh form of persecution. But friends, we should do well to note that throughout history, those who have carried the name of Christ have most certainly been excommunicated. The, the most immediate and I think perhaps most uh, clear illustration of this would be the days of the reformers. 
Martin Luther reads and studies the scriptures and sees justification by faith alone. He sees that it is by grace alone that we are saved, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And the immediate recompense for preaching the gospel was to be removed, excommunicated, cast out altogether. When one bears the name of Christ, when one genuinely preaches the gospel of Jesus, be not surprised that many will excommunicate you, even those who often will articulate that they are not only your friends, but they share your worldview. That genuinely to come in to preach the gospel of Christ normally, normally will remove you from many of, the, many of those that you would once have called peers, many that you would even once have called brothers. And so what is, how then do we understand this? How would we, how do we endure this? Well, Jesus has given them the means of enduring this. He says, you're connected to the vine. You're connected to the vine, and if you're connected to the vine, it matters not if you be disconnected, if you be excommunicated from all other type of relationships in the world. If you have the vine, then you have all that you need. That if you be connected to me, though you be ostracized from every other culture, from every other event, from every other relationship, you have all that is necessary. Calvin puts it this way, and he does so well. Christ commands them to stand firm against this attack because though they may be banished from the synagogue, they still remain in God's kingdom. In short, we should not be crushed by people's perverse judgments, but should endure boldly the reproach of Christ's cross and be content with this one thought. Our cause may be wickedly condemned by other people, but God approves of it. Friends, if your cause is the gospel, in every Every individual on the planet around you says this is wicked. Know that their disapproval is just that, wicked, and that you stand approved by God. That is more than sufficient. He is encouraging them. He's giving them all that is necessary, and he says to them, when you are kicked out of the synagogue, it matters not you are connected to me. Should you find yourself barred from the temple, and barred from the sacrifices that are there, that's okay. Their shadows and the substance has come. In Christ, we have our true and better sacrifice. In Christ, we have our true and better teacher. It matters not what we be disconnected from if we are connected to Christ, for He is all. But not only does He, he put forward that they will be excommunicated, He also warns them that their excommunication will ex- escalate to execution, that they will be executed. I want you to hear the language here because Jesus is essentially telling them. He's not, he's not telling them this may occur. It seems more like he's telling them that their execution will actually occur. Just notice the language. It says in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now listen to verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes... He's not questioning whether or not they will be executed. He is stating that they will be. Now, this is interesting, especially in light of the first verse, where he has said to them all the things that are necessary to keep them from falling away. Why is it that our Lord, knowing that his disciples will be executed, does not then give them all that is necessary to keep them from execution? It's because the greatest danger of the Christian life is not bodily harm, We often relate it to this. We think of suffering in this world as the great danger, as if we are trying to get to death safely. 
when genuinely the greatest danger of the Christian life is not bodily harm or the possession, our possessions being plundered or us being cast into prison. The greatest danger is being cut off from Christ. He's given them all that is actually necessary and needed. Should your body be destroyed and given to be burned, it matters not for you are kept in Jesus. He gives them all that is actually necessary and we would do well to prioritize our life around this. That the greatest tragedy is not that our body would suffer harm. It's not that our reputation would be damaged. It's not that our property would be plundered. It's that if Christ be cut off from me, then I have nothing. But if I have him, then I have all. To rightly prioritize our life the way that Jesus does. If he thought it so necessary for the disciples to be spared execution, he would have provided all that was necessary to spare them execution. He provided them nothing. He did not warn them. He he did not give them a means of, of an out. Instead, he said, I've given you something infinitely better, a security that lasts long after your body is dead and in the grave, a security that will actually mean that when your body is dead in the grave, you will have life unto me, that you will always be living unto me. Now, what's most interesting about this is that Jesus also prepares them for the fact that as they are being martyred, as they are being beheaded, crucified upside down, boiled in pots, He's reminding them that they will call it service unto God. That all these Pharisees, all of these Jewish people, or perhaps even the Romans who would be persecuting and killing the Christian for their exclusivity of the preaching of the gospel, that there is no other means, there is no other way to be saved, that when they are killed, there would be people heralding that this is unto God, that their murdering of the apostles, of those bringing the good news of the gospel, would be a means of worship unto God. Now, I think we can do well to ask the question, well, if Jesus wasn't God, I think it would be service unto God. If Jesus wasn't truly God and truly man, then the killing of the apostles would be just. As a matter of fact, it would be just not only, uh, I mean, not only from kind of the Jewish perspective, but even going back, a blasphemer. It's worthy of death. But when Christ comes, he is not, it is not an if he was God, it's since he was God, it goes from being a worship unto him to being an indictment against their service. That these people who would come in and saying, I'm killing all of these Christians, I'm martyring these apostles for the service to worship God, it then becomes an indictment against them. It's indicating that they have never actually worshiped the true God of Israel. Once again, because when the Lord Jesus arrives, they scorn him. Why? The whole premise, or one of the major themes that is run through chapter 13 through here, is this idea of they hate me because they hate God. They hate you because they hate me, which ultimately means that they hate the Christian because they hate the Father. Friends, what we actually see is those who go around, as 2 Corinthians would say, giving the aroma of Christ to God, that those who smell of it will think it death to death. And they have no other option but to kill it. Friends, we must remember that there are those who would go hard after the Christian because they believe that we are blasphemers. And friends, we stake our reputation on this. The whole premise of 1 Corinthians 15 is that if this is not true, then we have nothing. But friends, since it is true, though they martyr us and call it worship, though they would put our brothers to death around the world, though they would rob them in the midst of a time of worship, It matters not, for they have all that they need, for Christ has provided it. He has provided comfort for their souls. He has provided security eternally. Now, 
as they would look at this, they would excommunicate, they would execute, they would ultimately persecute the Christian because of their hatred toward Christ and toward God. But I think we do well to remember one thing. I, I just would like to present a case study, if you will, because this can seem a bit hopeless for our enemies. I mean, you consider the, the reality of there are these people who are haters of God, and in their hatred of God, they would go after the Christian because they bear the aroma of Christ to God. And in their bearing the aroma of Christ to God, they smell it and they hate it. Now, so what does that mean? How do we then interact with those who would persecute us? Because what you don't see here is Jesus then articulate to them, go to war with these individuals. Instead, you see something a bit different. And I think it would, we would do well to just do a brief case study here because there's one man in the scriptures that really does embody everything that Jesus warns the disciples about. His name was Saul. And just a couple of things I'd like to present to you. First and foremost, he made the habit of removing members of the way from the synagogues. As a matter of fact, on, when, he was, when he was converted, he was on his way to do this very task. He was on his way to take those who have borne the name of Christ, who have grown to love Jesus. They've heard the gospel and they say, yes, this is the glory of God. This is the splendor of the Old Testament revealed in Christ. And in seeing that, he comes and says, okay, I'm going to remove these people. They need to be excommunicated for they are preaching a false gospel gospel. They're preaching something that is wrong altogether. They are preaching that this man was God. They're blasphemers. Get them out. And on his way to do that, we should not only remember that he was excommunicating them, but he was doing so for a zeal. I mean, he even says, I had a zeal for God, but not the appropriate knowledge. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't understand what was occurring. He simply had some type of zeal that he would articulate was for God, all the while being a persecutor of who? Who is it that the Lord confronts him about persecuting? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says he has a zeal for God, but none is actually present. And lastly, he gives hearty approval to the murder of Stephen. When we come to this and we see this escalation that occurs, you see a persecution, a removal of the Jews from the synagogue of those who claim Christ as Lord. You see it go further into, into executing those who would claim Christ. But the beauty of this, the beauty of this is that these men, are not outside the saving grace of God. Can you consider, oftentimes we read these things and we think, there's no, look at these wicked men. We would do well to think, and such were some of us. And in it, we see the glory of God to bend Paul's knee and to say, this is the Lord Jesus. This is the gospel of Christ. And the reason I bring that to our attention is because our reaction to this and the apostles' reaction to persecution was not hatred and vitriol. They had an offense. Their offense was the gospel. Their offense was preaching the good news of Jesus. And in preaching the good news of Jesus, it was able to take enemies and make them brothers and sisters. This is the splendor of the gospel of Christ. There is no one who is outside of its reach. That those who were once its most vehement enemies will often find themselves bending the knee to him as Lord, God, and King. And I think this is just a moment of hope for us. That even those around the world, I got news this week of a brother in China who is planning on planting a church in an unreached people group, but he knows they hate him and they hate the gospel. And yet he will go, and I will be willing to bet that there will be souls there who have hated Christ for decades that will soon bow their knee to him as Lord. This is the hope of the gospel. Now, 
I've said that this is somewhat of a sandwich, that he gives them this persecution that will escalate, reminds them first that he's given them all that was necessary for them to be kept. And then he goes on to say in verse 4 through verse 7 how he will bring this about. Now, verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. A couple of things I want to draw out from this passage. First, Jesus didn't tell them of these earthly sorrows while he was with them. Why? Primarily because with Christ present, you see a unique zeal in the disciples. With Christ present, you see Peter draw his sword to strike anyone who would come after him. But after a brief period of time, you will find him being fearful of a maidservant. That when Christ is present, they have this great confidence, this great comfort. They see that Jesus is with them, and they assume that if Jesus is with them, then they they are, as it were, safe and secure from all alarm. And so he doesn't give them these. As he is moving toward his departure, he begins to articulate these things to them. He wants them to be prepared for. He doesn't want them to be blindsided by persecution and hatred because they're thinking that they're about to usher in the kingdom of God in a way that means they will be perhaps the most exalted people around. You even hear a couple of them ask, can I sit on your right? hand or your left hand when we enter into your kingdom. They are thinking of this great victorious battle, but what we ultimately see is Jesus laying down his life to win an even greater victory. And so as they're thinking through this, they presume that they will always have Christ with them, that there's no way that he will depart from them. And then as he is continuing on in his earthly ministry, what do you see Jesus do? But prepare him, prepare all of his disciples for his departure. And as he's preparing them for his departure, Their hearts fill with sorrow. Now, the language there is, I think, interesting. He says in verse 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, I love this word filled uh, because it actually has the idea of filling full. It's not so much of a pouring in as much as it is a completion of pouring. That they have reached a point of sorrow that they almost can't fathom. That the idea of Christ being removed from them is far too much to bear. Now, we will be reminded of two occurrences where Jesus will have sorrow and even remind the disciples that they should not have any sorrow. And he's given them all of these reasons as to why they should not be sorrowful, yet the departure of Christ is too great for them, it seems. It has filled them full of sorrow. They have no room for anything else. And then he comforts them. And I love how he comforts them because he comforts them about him departing with his departure. Essentially, he says to them, I'm departing, and I know that you are filled full with sorrow, but it is my departure that will fill you full of something different. And I think that's the major premise here. But he articulates it this way. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Let's just consider this statement because I'm convinced that this statement in and of itself is the most disagreed with statement on the planet by Christians in particular. Listen to it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. You know, I'll never forget reading this for the first time, and perhaps you were here with me at some point in your childhood or as you're coming to the Scriptures the first time, you think to yourself, it cannot be to my advantage that Christ go It can't be. You're telling me that it's better that you depart. 
You're telling me that it's better for me, it's better that I don't have you here, that I can't lay my eyes on you. And all of us, because we are so blind, because we only accept what we can see, think, of course, it's not better. We look at him and borderline call him a liar. Can you imagine, even for us, let's just consider then, because who he's saying this to is his disciples. Let's not consider the fact that Jesus actually does have a body that is present, that he has to be in a location here on the earth. But when we look at this, let's just consider it from the disciples' perspective, because he's saying this to the disciples, and we think Jesus is a liar even now. Let's consider what the disciples had. He says this, or we see Jesus walking with the disciples, ever constantly present with them. He taught the disciples directly, that the words that we read in the pages of Holy Writ are given directly to the disciples. They're the ones who are hearing always. He corrects the disciples. He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Wouldn't you love to hear the Lord Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, to you? That when you sin, you would find that he would quickly correct you? And not only that, he comforts them. As a matter of fact, he makes reference to sending another comforter to us, that he is the means by which the disciples are comforted. The reason that they were bold when he was present is because he was their comfort. And we look at this and we say, so it's to my advantage that you go. Really? Now, why is it to our advantage? It's to our advantage because what we get is the Holy Spirit of God, this helper, this comforter that will fill us. The same way that our sorrow is filled, filled to completion, a far better thing will fill us, namely the Spirit of God. And so we look at it and we say, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Brothers and sisters, we are on the opposite side of Jesus's vast teaching on the Holy Spirit of God, that he will lead us into truth, that he will provide for us comfort, that he will be our helper, that he is our parent. He is the one that reminds us of the glories of the gospel. We should be, the disciples should be saying, yes, Lord, be glorified, ascend, and send us the helper. But because our eyes are often too weak, because we do not trust what we cannot see, we look at him and presume, no, it cannot be true that it is better. Next week, we will do a full examination of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. But brothers and sisters, I would urge you, If you were just to take a moment to look through all of the things the Spirit of God does in the life of the saint, you would say, praise be to God that he was glorified, crucified, buried, raised on the third day, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to mediate for us, not only because of his finished work, but because of the work of the Spirit that is now being wrought in your life. You would not be kept apart from the Spirit of God keeping you. The reason that we look at this and we say, it's the word and the work of Jesus that keeps us. And then we also say in the same vein, it is the Spirit of God that keeps us. It's because the Spirit only seals that which Christ bled for. And that which Christ bled for will not be lost. And the Spirit keeps all that Christ has purchased. The Trinity of God, they work so perfectly together to give us this great assurance. And thus we look to the word and work of Christ and say, safe, kept, I will not fall away. Amidst persecution, amidst comfort, I cannot fall away. But simultaneously, we look and know that all the beauties, all of the works, all the glories of the Holy Spirit of God has sealed that which Christ bled for. It is ours, and we are filled full. Like I said, next week we'll develop that more fully. But saying, I would urge you, when was the last time that you were aware of the Spirit's presence in your life? That you took the moment to think to yourself that from the moment of your conversion, you have not been anything but filled full. 
that from the moment that you came to saving faith in Christ, that that saving faith in Christ was birthed by the Spirit of God, and that which He birthed, He will keep you in. Saying, we can come to this, and we can see persecution being excommunicating, being executed, as it were. We can see any trial and tribulation that will come, and we rest knowing that the words of Christ will keep us, but we also rest knowing that the Spirit of God is communicating those words in our life effectively. Effectively. And thus we have hope. And so, friends, the whole premise here is Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Friends, we've lived in that. And we've had just as much as they had. They did not have it better. They did not have anything more splendid. The Spirit of God has communicated to you all that Christ communicated to his disciples and will continue to do so. He keeps those who are his. He teaches those who are his. And saying, I would just plead with you. The Spirit of God is worthy of worship and praise. The words and word, the works and words of Christ are able to keep us. And thus we look to the Father and say, thank you, Father, providing such a great salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the work of Christ, that in the work of Christ what we have is freedom from our sin. As we've even celebrated at the Lord's table today, we've celebrated the fact that you drank the cup of God's wrath, that we might drink the cup of promise, Lord, that we look to your broken body knowing that ours would never endure the suffering that inspired the phrase, I thirst. Lord, we come thanking you for the glories of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the Spirit of God who has made them known to us. Lord, that because of the Spirit's work, we see the splendor of Christ. Because of the Spirit's work, we will never fall away. Lord, that we can come boldly with assurance. And that, Lord, when we labor from that insurance, when we look to the Scriptures and you communicate to us the splendors of Christ, may we be reminded of your work. When sin is put to death in our souls, may we be reminded that it is your work. Lord, when we are comforted, may we be reminded that it is your work. Lord, may we be reminded that every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights and praise him for them. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen.